listening to the Carleton Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Ami, one of the PhD students with the program. Just a few short weeks ago, LeBron James led the LA Lakers to a record-tying 17th NBA championship. The victory capped off what might be the most unique NBA season in league history, not only because of the unprecedented NBA bubble in which the games took place due to COVID-19, but because of the central place the politics of race and justice held throughout the abbreviated season. The murder of George Floyd at the hand of Minneapolis police officers in May of this year catalyzed a protest movement felt around the world, and perhaps no other space was this more evident than on the court during the NBA season. Players throughout the league wore jerseys adorned in slogans deriding police brutality against black Americans, while Black Lives Matter was sprawled along the court of every game. And while James indeed led his team to a historic title win, his activism both on and off the court may be what he is best remembered for in this season, as he led the charge for athletes across leagues, not just basketball, to engage in an unimaginable level of anti-racist and anti-oppression activism. For the multi-sport Wildcat strike in the wake of the shooting of Jacob Blake by police in Kenosha, to the ever-militant NFL even allowing players to wear anti-oppression slogans as stickers on their helmets. This year in sports was simply one where politics and sports became intertwined in a way that has never happened before and may never happen again. This week on the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, we're proud to bring you a spiritual sequel to one of our favorite episodes from last year, The Politics of the Game. Joining me again is Professor Aaron Edinger, a member of the faculty here at Carleton, specializing in international relations and American foreign policy, as well as Alexandra Wishart, a PhD student and critical race scholar here at the Department of Political Science, specializing in citizenship regimes and civil wars. So Aaron, just about a year ago, you and I recorded a podcast very much about this subject, but it was a very different environment. Obviously, this is before COVID-19, but it was also at a time when the political agency of athletes, while it was still there and still being exercised, was perhaps a little more fringe than it is right now. Uh, for both you and Ali, how does protest play out across different sports and different sport leagues? And what does that tell us about sports, protests, and culture more broadly? Well, you know, the sporting protest phenomenon has played out like radically different across the different leagues. I mean, of course, most of us, you know, think about sports and protests and think about the WNBA or the NBA and how vocal and almost completely unified those players have been in playing a frontline role in social justice movements and anti-racism movements in the United States. But in other places, there are just thunderous silences. And here I think about you know the NHL, which perhaps is not entirely surprising, but you also Major League Baseball, uh, where most if, of the protest has been muted, right? There was a little bit of acknowledgement of the Black Lives Matter movement in the first weekend of the season. But for the most part, Major League Baseball has taken a pretty apolitical approach to things. We're nearing the start of the NFL season. The NFL just has is this bundle of contradictions with regards to its politics. And in some other places, you know, like uh, like tennis, you see some action coming from uh, Naomi Osaka and other stars in the leagues. But for the most part, uh, you know, political protest has been really, really uneven and concentrated almost entirely on the basketball court. Well, and that shouldn't come as a huge surprise, right? I mean, you look at the composition of 
the NBA and the WNBA, and it's like 70-ish percent African-American stars. And and you could look and obviously see that in the NFL as well. But the difference is, is that the stars in the NBA and WNBA, okay, I'm, I hate to do this, right? But <laughs> I am going to, I am using them in that they are playing the same game in that we call the WNBA and the NBA the same like it's both called basketball, but I mean, the differences in the reach in terms of that is like Brittany Griner makes like a hundred thousand dollars and Steph Curry makes 40 million. There's just like, there's no comparison in terms of the impact of the differences, but in terms of the way that they have the ability to shape political discourse, I think it is, it is radically different for the NBA or the capacity for NBA stars to do that because they are recognizable, right? Like there is no way you're passing LeBron James on the street and not knowing who it is. And even, you know, like a small guard for a middling team is still going to be fairly recognizable because they, it is a, it is a much more star focused league than something like the NFL, which doesn't have like you're out in pads and helmets, right? There, the average contract length for the NFL is three years, uh, or the average career length is three years. You don't have the same capacity to sort of shift, and I, I think that the MLB is is a lot like the NFL in the sense that they are any any social justice activity that they are going to be doing is with gritted teeth. <laughs> Uh, because they still really identify themselves as like sort of America's game, even though I would probably argue that in the 50s, the NFL has supplanted that, but that the MLB is sort of tries to stay above the fray, even though, I mean, that's hooey, but they think of themselves as staying above the fray much more than I think any of the other leagues are able to anyways. Yeah. I mean, I would agree with that. Uh, the the NBA also has seemed to buck the culture of conformity that's been a part of the other sports leagues, right? The, the NFL is, you know, basically a plantation, right? Uh, Major League Baseball has its weird traditions that's somehow mystically linked 2020 to 1890, right? So, and if you stray from those traditions, it's some sort of crime against the game. You know, the, NI, the NHL is almost is maybe the most repressed of all the leagues in terms of conformity, but basketball players have managed to break that mold. And we could probably trace this back, you know, through the decades, uh, but it would seem as if basketball players in the NBA in particular have been far more consistent in playing political roles and outwardly political roles. The WNBA deserves a lot of credit in all this for kind of being at the forefront of the really vocal organized politics of the last couple of years. Uh, it was so much of so much of what the WNBA did in early 2020 to, you know, bring the names out, Breonna Taylor and the rest that gave, I don't want to say permission to the NBA to do so, but created a template for the NBA to follow and the NBA with its huge stars and name recognition made it mainstream and almost made it, you know, cool and trendy, almost made it expected of athletes to position themselves on one side of the equation or the other. Well, I think certainly template is the correct, that's a great word to use for this because, but I think that even pushing behind the WNBA and looking at the United States women's soccer team as being sort of willing to push 
the envelope to push what counts as political and when political speech is available to them on the largest stage. And sort of they were able to do it. I think the WNBA had more space to do it because fewer people watched, whereas the women's soccer team could do it because so many people were watching in an unusual space. It, it sort of made, I think women's sports made the way a little bit easier in terms of trying to figure out what what team protest might look like, what individual protest of sports stars might look like. So I, I think that that's really true, that this, the, it's a template sort of model that, that women were able to provide to the men's sports. Yeah, I, I think you, you may, the women's national team uh, in soccer, the WNBA, we can also talk about the women's gymnastics teams. Uh, you know, what they all have in common in terms of their organized protest is, you know, not much to lose and everything in the world to gain. Right? They're not, you know, multimillionaire athletes who might lose sponsorship deals if they run afoul of the wrong person, right? Or they, they're not going to be drummed out of a sport where they're going to lose out on, you know, $10 million a year contracts. They have everything to gain. And in that regard, you know, the, the moment was right for them to speak up because, uh, you know, there was nothing to lose. Uh, that, you know, that nothing to lose mentality certainly explains a lot of why, you know, professional male athletes have been relatively silent over the years, right? My, you know, it was ascribed to Michael Jordan, the line that Republicans buy sneakers too. Mm -hmm. And that's why he didn't do politics openly. He later admitted to actually saying that. But I suppose, you know, the, the point is here is that when you're a multimillionaire athlete in the public eye with lots of sponsorships, you don't really want to do anything to compromise that. And there are only, you know, a small handful of you know, male athletes at the professional level in American history and Canadian history who have ever done that, right? Muhammad Ali, John Carlos and Tommy Smith in the Olympics in 68, Colin Kaepernick, that's about it, yeah. right? And so having something to lose is a tremendous deterrent from radicalism. Well, I think it's not just, it's not just that the players themselves have so much to lose in terms of their responses, right? There may be like something brewing in a locker room, but it is that the leagues, I mean, like the NFL is a $92 billion league now, right? That they are heavily policing because Republicans also buy NFL season tickets, right? They also buy jerseys, they buy, and it's, you know. And they buy teams. Well, <laughs> precisely so, right? And so they don't, they don't really want to be alienating their base, such as it were, right? If you look at uh, polling on people that watch NFL games, it is, it, I think it's 65% of those who responded had played golf in the last two weeks from from the time of the poll, right? So these are not, you know, lunchbox blue collar workers. These are people that can lay out real money on jerseys and and um, luxury boxes and all that luxury nonsense. boxes and stuff like that and and these are huge contracts that are being worked out and so there's enormous pressure from the NFL to sort of put up and shut up and, you know, sh or shut up and dribble as is the cultural reference now, right? To not speak out because you're going to alienate a portion of the country and then you have or god forbid you have the president you know talking about your league negatively on national news you know 24 hours a day i, I mean i suppose this is all 
this all helps to explain why some of the sports are less radical or less politicized than others. Uh, I mean, like I spoke a moment ago about how the NFL is just this bundle of contradictions. And, you know, we, you got to it a little bit there that, uh, you know, it's, its ownership group is deeply conservative and tied to Donald Trump and donate to Donald Trump and all that kind of stuff. Its fan base in many parts of the country are, you know, deep red country, yet its employees on the field are something like 70 or 80% black uh, and now have the opportunity to wear the names of police violence victims on the back of their helmets, and they can look up at the tops of the stadiums and see that Black Lives Matter. All the while, you know, occupying this weird militarized space on the gridiron where, you know, ritualized incantations about support for the military and love of the police are part of the, you know, weekly, you know, rituals of the sport. And the NFL, the NFL cannot contain this forever. Something is going to have to give, right? Lest people start tuning out or the players take start taking it really, really seriously. And so, you know, the NFL is this bizarre kind of freak show of American politics at this moment uh, that seem to be managing to keep it together, right? $92 billion a year business. Uh, but, you know, the cracks are, are very, very obvious in the political dynamics. Well, I think he started to say it there, right? That the players need to take it more seriously. And, and that makes me think a lot about the players' unions, right? If you look at the difference between the NFL players' union and the NBA players' union, I guarantee you, you have never heard the, of the person who is the president of the NFL Players Association. He's been in the league for like 17 years and has started twice in the last 10 of them or something like that, right? And the NBA, it's Chris Paul, Mello, and uh, who else is it? Paul George, I think, maybe. These are the stars of the league, and they mm -hmm. are able to negotiate into their contracts more effectively. They are willing to bargain with the league much more effectively, whereas the NFL Players Union is really, I mean, a lot of it is based on this idea that you know, there's the sort of well-used war mentality, right? The tropes of, about talking about the NFL. But the idea is, is that you like walk it off, that you shake it off, right? That it's for the love of the game. And so the NFL players, the culture of football is much less sort of focused on individual rights. It is much more communitarian in that way. <laughs> you know, it sounds insane, but... In terms of their, in terms of their bargaining strategy, I mean, you know, you and I before we started, we're talking about the Cowboys' um, quarterback just went down, and he'll be out for six months. Well, he is on a franchise tag, right? And so he's not getting paid this year, and is basically auditioning for his big contract. And now, in all likelihood, right, he's not going to get his money now, and that's because the players' association doesn't fight for, like, the, you get a franchise tag and you get paid less, right? That the franchise can sort of audition you for another year instead of paying you. You mm -hmm. There's no guaranteed contracts compared to NFL or any other sport, really. You get no guaranteed contracts. People get hurt. And it's because they don't take care of the players in the same way because players fighting for individuality in the NFL is seen as a as a negative thing. Whereas in, in basketball, there really is a sort of individualistic culture. I mean, they play a team sport, obviously, but you know, it was funny. You were talking about how 
in basketball, there's this sort of individuality and there's, uh, there's much more personality that's, that's come out of the league. And I was thinking of, uh, in the 1990s, the, uh, NBA put a rule that you had to dress up in like a suit and tie to come out in and out of the arenas when you were coming in. Right. And it was because they didn't want like the Pistons (laughs) coming in and like, in you know, quote unquote wrap clothing or whatever, right? Saggy pants or whatever else. So they made this rule. And now you look at it, it is an absolute fashion show, right? If you think about, um, uh, who's the guy that played the heat with LeBron? Wade. Wait, yeah. Um, Dwayne Wade. Yeah. Dwayne, Dwayne Wade, Wade. Chris Bosh. And you see them and they are just abs. I mean, they're spending thousands of dollars on a suit that they're wearing out of the arena for six minutes. Right. But it is that way that the NBA is much flashier to start with. And I think a lot of that has to do with where these players come from and also their fan bases, right? Like the the base of the fan base of the NBA is much more African American. It is much more Latino comparatively. It is much less conservative. So they can be more fashion forward. They can be mm. more sort of personality driven in a way that the NFL's like is just simply will not be because their fan base will not, you know, they would see that as some sort of you know, it's almost like a religion in the NFL and they would see that as some sort of apostasy, right? To have players <laughs> players behaving that way. Yeah, I mean, it's ironic that the the uh, the requirements to wear a suit and tie or wear something respectable, quote unquote respectable, mm-hmm. was done in order to enforce conformity. Certainly in the NHL for years, it was about enforcing team conformity. In the, in the NBA, uh, you, you mentioned it, it was done after the Malice at the Palace brawl, mm-hmm. right? Back in, I think it was 02, something like that, between your Detroit Pistons and I was the Pacers. I think it was the Pacers. Yeah, it was the Pacers. Ron Artest going crazy, running into the crowd. <laughs> Meta World and, Peace, but, you mean? <laughs> Meta, Meta World Peace, right? Meta World News Peace. And, you know, th- that was done in response to a decade or so of that kind of, you know, gangster rap hip hop aesthetic making its way into the NBA and that was scaring away fans maybe it was scaring away fans at least their league thought that it was scaring away uh, some of their white fans and they had to do something about that so the enforced conformity of dressing nicely to and fro was adapted over the years into this fashion show Mm -hmm. that is now you know made for the Instagram era which speaks to you know, this nice little kind of convenient synthesis here in which players are more than entitled to their individuality and freedom of expression, but within a pretty narrow band of possibility, right? There, there's almost no radicalism in any of this politics, right? It is, it, uh, it is all, you know, pro-market, pro-product, you know, getting their message out there, getting their brand out there. And, all of the politics that they end up practicing, certainly as we've seen in 2020, are pretty moderate and reformist. And so, you know, they're very, and if you think about it, there are very few athletes who are prepared to step outside of that moderate band of political activity to be, you know, truly kind of radical individuals in the political space of sports. Colin Kaepernick is really the only one, and even he signed a big contract with Nike. Well, I don't, I don't know that that's, that's true. Okay. So I, so I'm going to start from this position. I am a purple and gold fan. I am a Lakers fan through and through. 
I have been, up until this moment, pretty ambivalent about LeBron James because of the ridiculous press conference and and whatever, whatever. But well, I the, the decision ten years uh, ago, you still you still claiming that? I was that? furious. But he came home. I don't <laughs> want to hear about it. I do not. I was, he was so like twenty-seven. Over him. You can forgive him. I I don't care. I. So now all I have done, I have moved from having no tolerance for LeBron James. Also, he just got us a title. So I am I, just now ambivalent about him. So that's where I am in the space. However, I will say that LeBron James has been comparatively quite brave in terms of his activism level, his pushing for amplifying things like Breonna Taylor. I mean, he has... You know, we talked about the fashion show in and out. He has been pretty consistently wearing Black Lives Matter messaging or social justice messaging and has been using his platform in a way that I think is really savvy and also that has not really been available to previous generations, right? Because he has, there is no mediation between, um, LeBron James and the fan base and the world generally, right? He can reach all of his people, all the people who love him or are interested in sports or whatever else. He can reach them on Twitter and Instagram and things like that. And he does not need to be dependent on the league. And he is so large. I think that's that we're sort of talking about that in terms of women's soccer, right? That he is so large. What are they going to do? Fire him, right? And I think because of that, he can make space for other players in a way that are that is unusual to this age because there is like he sort of has a wingspan out over people who are hoping to be a bit more active and I think the other thing that is really unusual and we were chatting about this last night is the role of coaches in giving cover to their players because I remember when Steve Kerr was the was the coach of the Warriors and there was that thing where they didn't want to go because it was 2016 and Donald Trump was the president and they were all disgusted. And then he went on this diatribe about the Warriors and disinvited them. And then Steve Kerr was asked by the media and he was was very honest, right? That like, yeah, they're disgusted by his policies and I don't blame them and I support them and whatever else. And I've noticed that Greg Popovich also does this, who I love pop. Like I... I'm a system girl and I love watching the San Antonio Spurs, even when they're not great. Like when they had Kawhi and, and Ginobili and that, it was wonderful. But Pop has been really, you know, he's a cranky white man. And so he says things in cranky white man ways, but, but he is very supportive of his players when they decide that they want to do social justice sort of motivated uh, stuff on the court. And he is, he is defensive of their ability to do that and also is is critical. And I and I think that makes a huge difference because traditionally the coaches have been a major arm of the leagues in sort of making sure players fall in line with the commercial aspirations of, of the leagues. And I and I think that there is some cracking in the facade of of the you know administration and management of teams. Yeah, I mean it's funny. I mean Popovich and Steve Kerr are are, are interesting, you know, examples here of, you know, of, of white coaches translating their black players' preferences to the rest of the NBA or to the rest of the NBA fan base, which kind of in itself is a little bit, 
uncomfortable to think about <laughs> that you know you need a you need a like a white male manager in order to you know in, in order to express yourself so that you know the, the the point you made there is 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 really interesting but it comes with those strange implications for the sort of division of political labor within within the players or within the locker room uh, you know as for Le, lebron james you know it still took bron bron you know 9 years or so to come out of his political shell right he came into the league in 2000 and what 3 2004 something along those lines mm-hmm. uh, but really only started having a voice or using his voice uh, in the early 2010s, around 2012, after Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown stuff, you know, he led the charge on wearing I Can't Breathe shirts after Eric Garner in 2015. Uh, but this was a long time coming. So, you know, LeBron's you know, caution in that regard, you know, doesn't look great from a historical vantage point. But to your point, it was, you know, transformative, right? He gave all of the lesser players in the league permission to come out and, you know, voice their political opinions without him providing that kind of cover as a player, as the star, as the guy who's going to take all the flack for all this kind of stuff. We may not have seen the kind of thoughtful activism in the end, in the NBA that we see today. Now, in 2020, he's he's done a wonderful thing, and it's not just leading the Lakers to championship number 17, about which you, somehow you are still ambivalent, but he's, you know, actually doing voter mobilization. Let's right? he not founded pretend the, like he's the only one that's got a championship for the Lakers, okay? Let's not... Fair enough. We're not new. This isn't our first one. <laughs> fair enough. Um, you know, his more than a vote organization is really really interesting right back in 2016 you know he did a couple of on-stage appearances for hillary clinton this time around he's actually lending his voice and image to mobilization uh you know more than a vote is an organization specifically designed to combat racist voter suppression in the united states and while you know he doesn't say it on the back of his jersey or anything along those lines right, that is a a sharp elbowed political action that he is taking that is much, much more, um, much, much more assertive than some of the kind of milk toast sloganeering we've seen from a lot of the players. Well, I think he's got some space to do that. So again, I was ambivalent about LeBron when he came into the league. I know, I, but he's, I still think Michael Jordan is better than him. But no, I think, I think that we tend to be as a culture because we are we are so plugged in now. I think we tend to be pretty hard on, especially black athletes, because we say to them, well, this is happening in your community. So don't you have some responsibility to go out there and fix it? Braun came into the league at, I think he was 19, right? He mm-hmm. was an absolute kid, right? We want a 19 year old phenom who has been in the Basically, since he was in Pampers, he has been followed around by the sports press because he was. Like, if you see him play in high school, he's incredible, right? And so Mm. everybody knew where he was coming. And and this kid is the hope of... It's not just his dreams that he's required to carry, right? It is also his family, his friends. Like, a lot of these 
players, right, come out of the inner city. I mean, that's why the NBA is so closely linked to inner cities and, and you know, poor communities and whatever else, because it's cheap, right? You don't have to buy mm-hmm. as much stuff to, to be able to play basketball. And so they come out, and this is their shot at getting a payday. This is the only shot that them and their families and their you know, future families, like their children and grandchildren, whatever, it's, it's the one option that they have for, for getting a payday that is, that is real. Right. And we expect so much of them to come out all at once. And, and it would not have been like, people would have been unhappy if LeBron James at 19 had political thoughts that he wanted to communicate in 2000. I think it's 2003, 2004 was his rookie year. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think part of it is that he had to grow a little bit, right? But then also sort of he had to have a brand that was strong enough to withstand the criticism that would come from that. I I kind of think I I liken this a lot to Beyonce. So if you'll remember, Beyonce was in Destiny's Child. And I know this is off sports a bit, but they're related in pop culture-y sort of ways. But Beyonce was in Destiny's Child, and they were this, like, capitalist dream team, right, of Destiny's Child. And then Beyonce breaks off, and she is, she does not rock the boat, right? She is doing regular pop R&B music, and then out comes Lemonade, right? And I got into an actual (laughs) argument with Bell Hooks about this, because she was very critical of Beyonce as this just being a new form of capitalism. And there's something to be said about sort of woke washing capitalism in in the way that the leagues are doing now. But, But Beyonce prior to Lemonade was, or, you know, like 10 years prior to Lemonade, let's say, did not have the strength culturally to go out on her own and make some huge statement about American politics without being disciplined by her her recording label, by her fans, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that there's something to be said that, that you have to make decisions um, on your own in terms of when you feel like you have the political cover to to step out like that, especially when people are expecting you to just sing or just dribble or just, you know, throw touchdown passes or whatever. And I, I think that we tend to be critical because everyone's so plugged in now. It feels like everybody should be judged by the moment. And, mm-hmm. and, and I, I really sort of would like to resist that idea because there is, I think people are doing their best and, and it is not up to, every black athlete to go out and fix the United States. They didn't break it and they have to live with it. I mean, if you look at Sterling Brown, he got beat up by the Milwaukee police for double parking and a handicap and they beat him up, tased him and arrested him. And they knew, and they're, you know, like it came out, this happened in 2018 and then it came out later, the body cam footage so that you could actually see them making jokes about the fact they knew who he was, that he played for the Bucks, and he, um, and you know, there was racial slurs and, yes. and et cetera, et cetera. And so he can use that because he has this like deep tie to actual police violence, right? And uh, Cephalosha got his leg broken by the police. But I think if you don't have that, right, if you can't hold somebody that you know up, then you're expected to just sort of shut up and, and, let sports be sports. And that's really a thing, especially in the United States, that I, I think we get sort of 
trapped looking at people like they all should be able to work Instagram and Twitter and whatever else like the biggest stars are able to, but only really recently. And that's, a, and that's an important point that um, our recency bias kind of blinds us to the world that a player like LeBron James entered into in the early 2000s. So you think about LeBron, he grew up, he, you know, watching Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, who were both studiously apolitical mm -hmm. in their approach, right? You know, they both wanted to win and kill you at the same time, <laughs> uh, but wanted to stay far away from the political side of things because, because of their, their, for their very own reasons. So I suppose, you know, it's easy to project backwards upon LeBron James and say that he should have been more vocal in the early 2000s, uh, but that simply wouldn't have been realistic to think that way. However, it's now 2020, and we are seeing players come into the league 19, 20, 21, who do have maybe not fully formed political opinions, but are more than comfortable uh, managing a public profile that is be that goes beyond their particular sport, which you know could be a good thing, right? It certainly makes the sport more entertaining to watch because at the end of the day, this is all a show. This is all a TV show. It does make it more interesting and more consequential for viewers and much more interesting for you know for society at large. And hey, at the end of the day, maybe they'll be able to uh, be a force for good. But this, the point you make about bell hooks talking about how this is just all another form of capitalism. Well, it sort of is, right? I mean, it, it, it sort of is insofar as nobody is really giving up any paychecks, right? Nobody is really challenging any power hierarchies or doing anything that's costing anybody any money. I mean, I think in the last 12 months of sports, if we go back to the beginning of the 2019-2020 sports year in September 2019, the most radical thing that anybody said was, uh, uh, was Daryl Morey, general manager for the Houston Rockets, tweeting in support of Hong Kong pro-democracy protesters. And, and that was the most radical thing that's been said in the last year because that actually cost money. Right? That actually put interests on the line, right, in support of a particular political objective. Now, we all know how this turned out. Daryl Morey was uh, swiftly quieted by the league and Beijing expelled the NBA from China, canceled all the exhibition games and shut down NBA broadcasts in China until only a couple of days ago uh, at game five of the NBA finals. To me, this speaks to the, the narrow band of political possibility and what we're talking about and what, and what athletes are talking about in pro sports these days. It only seems really dramatic what they're talking about compared to the you know, deafening silence of the previous generations in terms of organized political thought. I don't know, Dr. E. I think the general strike that rocked through sports pretty recently is that was pretty notable. I, I was very shocked to be honest with you of in terms, cause that did cost money, right? Like they had to cancel games for that because the players wouldn't, they wouldn't go into the gym. That felt like a real sort of critical juncture crisis moment for the leagues because it showed just in that moment, right? How strong a team could be. Right. And you'll notice that, that the NFL, has no 
no intention of allowing that to happen whatsoever, right? But I think in baseball and basketball, right, it really did show that there there was some ability for athletes to, you know, make non-materialist decisions count for the leagues, for sports fans, for every, you know, everybody involved with the sports industry there in a way that I have I I cannot remember. It felt a little bit like the John Carlos moment. Like where this is a huge thing where there was like something has this will be remembered. I will tell this story to my children, right? I mean, I think that was the impulse in the early going, but compare how this wildcat strike started to how it ended, right? It started uh, with the response to the Jacob Blake shooting in Kenosha and all the players and the Bucks saying, we're not going to take this anymore. This is unacceptable. Enough is enough. You know, hard move to strike. But then you know, three days later, they were back at work. Is that to say that, you know, enough is not enough or that they are going to continue taking it? I mean, at, after the three days of the Wildcat strike, they mostly just sort of filtered back to work. And from my perspective, this was kind of weak. It didn't suggest that they were, I don't know, fully committed to this strike action or whatever really it was. And, you know, the what the Bucks did largely forced the hand of all the other teams and players and in the, and other sports as well. I think that it does not necessarily reflect the, uh, you know, any degree of consensus in these organizations and, and, and across the leagues. So I, I, I'm wary of overestimating just how dramatic or transformative that three-day strike was in late August, 2020. I don't know. I feel like that there was like, it is always when we look back, the critical juncture is always in hindsight, right? You can't see it when it's happening. And I just, I can't help but think that when you have had especially racially based cultural change in the United States, it has come through cultural institutions, which I would, you know, people would argue with me, but sports to me is a cultural institution and they become sort of the vanguard of revolutionary struggle. And I think that this opened up the realm of possibility, even if this one doesn't work, like you sort of think of, you know, we're because I've read quite an awful lot about World War One lately, how the, the League of Nations failed, but then the United Nations succeeded because there, there was the realm of possible had changed. And I, I, that's how I sort of see this, right. Is that this is a place where black cultural institutions, especially, and, and this is, it's notable that it was the bucks because the player that I'm talking about, which I now I have looked it up and it is Sterling Brown. I was correct. He is the brother of Shannon Brown, who is another basketball player, but, um, that was where this had happened for him. And he, he has gotten quite a bit of movement there be in Milwaukee because he was offered a settlement by the city of $400,000 and he turned it down. That was this year. And so has led sort of the charge locally there. I'm not talking about a national movement, but locally to improve the relationship between the black community and the, the police in uh, Milwaukee and, and the surrounding areas. And, and, and I think that that is an important movement, that it is increasingly beco- becoming much more difficult to complain about like sports stars as being like, you know, whiny black millionaires, right? When, when their privilege, such as it is, will not protect them, it 
it is a very powerful mobilizing force and because of their platform that there's room for change there. So I don't know. I'm, I'm oddly enough, I think I'm a bit more optimistic than you are about the capacity for that. I think your optimism is warranted and I'm also optimistic and, and think that this is all very encouraging. Uh, but what I'm, what I think what we're disagreeing about is the degree to which this is revolutionary. I use the word revolutionary. I think it's much more reformist uh, and incremental. Now, that's not to say that this is a bad thing. Of course, you know, reform in the United States is painstakingly slow and any forward progress is good progress. I just doubt the degree to which this is especially revolutionary or radical. You know, I'm, I'm looking right now at the list of the approved messages that the NBA players were allowed to wear on their, ba on their backs. And some of them are really, really bland. Uh, you know, the good ones include Black Lives Matter, say their names, I can't breathe. Those are, those are sharp edged, right? But other ones are like what? Love us, education reform, group economics. I'm not seeing things like defund the police or disband the police or anything that has, you know, any sort of tinge of radicalism, which is, which, okay, fine. I mean, that's, that's, those are the parameters of the game that we're, we're watching and playing with right now. Uh, but the degree to which any of the, this new sports politics is radical or revolutionary is, is in my mind, really, really doubtful. Kaepernick and, you know, Muhammad Ali and some of the others put their entire careers on the line in order to pursue, you know, the kind of radical or revolutionary change that they were seeking. I'm not, not really seeing that these days. And certainly in the sort of approved corporate form of political protest, you know, they're not about to risk their paychecks in order to, you know, accommodate the new player politics. But then how much of that is sort of, again, sort of stuck in being lost in the idea that the Overton window has shifted radically? I mean, can you imagine in 2013 if they were talking about, you know, widespread police reform where police officers have to become more transparent and accountable and that there is racialized policing standards and data has to be produced. I mean, I feel like I'm a pretty progressive person and I don't think that we should get rid of the police. I think the police should stop doing as much stuff as they are doing, but I do not think that we should abolish ICE. I also don't think that we should abolish the police, right? I... I think that there are lots of sort of spaces in between, but I like this would have been stuff that the the players would have worked out with the league, right? They would have come to a memorandum of of understanding with about these slogans or whatever. And I don't know how many of again, right? It, it's assuming a a progressive a level of progressive politics that I'm not sure is reflected in the league. So for them, this may feel like a pretty revolutionary thing. And, and I don't mean necessarily what they are advocating is revolutionary. I mean, the way that they are advocating is revolutionary. A wildcat strike across sports is incredible. And not only I just to sort of tie this back into college sports as well on the same day, the, uh, Ole Miss football team refused to practice. They refused to go into the gym and that is you know, talking about providing sort of the wingspan of a pro or a wingspan of celebrity over top of people, right? They could do that in large measure because, you know, the big boys were not playing and that and were willing to make a statement that I I couldn't imagine having happened 
even, I mean, even a year ago, I mean, college sports is the most conservative place that I can imagine. I mean, they are more conservative. And I mean, the fan base and the sort of Trumpist, (laughs) like that's where they are, right? When I talk about, you know, I talk about the polling of NFL fans being white men that play golf. The fan base of the SEC, for instance, is very much blue collar. I mean, that's not to say there aren't affluent people because it is so widespread, but like there is a much wider range. It is much more um, democratic in the uh, bank accounts (laughs) of sports fans there. But the SEC particularly, which was the first, it was the first conference to make a billion dollars. They just absolutely abhor the idea that there is anything to do with politics associated with their conference because they want they really do want them to just go out there and play because it's a a, a million and billion dollar business. So I th- I think it is revolutionary in terms of the realm of possibility, not necessarily that the the policies that they are advocating. I I would agree definitely agree that the political room to maneuver for a given individual athlete has expanded enormously. Right, with all with the 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 top flight players, the top shelf players, you know, giving permission and the political cover for lesser players to act. That that is a significant change, and we're not going to see the you know marginal players drummed out of the league as a matter of course for expressing a political opinion. Although you know Eric Reed and some of Colin Kaepernick's fellow travelers back from 2017 are still out of work, but that's in the NBA. I mean, I'm moving forward. I'm really interested to see how the organized nature of political protest evolves over the seasons. Right? Individually, I would expect them players to express their opinions or at least express their opinions when uh, they know they're not going to get enormous blowback. Uh, but the organized nature of the protest, uh, I think, remains up in the air. The NBA's progressive reformist style seems to, you know, is is falling on the wave after the George Floyd protests, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the, the kneeling protests we saw in the streets in the summer of 2020 lent itself very well to emulation during the anthems in August and September of 2020. Yeah. But how the organized stuff continues into 2021 is another story. Would we see player and team walkouts when there's 20,000 fans in attendance? I'm not entirely sure of that, but that is something that of course remains to be seen. Yeah. So I'm going to pitch a question out there. When we're talking about these different leagues and the sort of different opportunity structures and different cultures, you know, from my estimation, we're essentially talking about institutional differences between them. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. in your guys' opinion, maybe Ali will start with you. How much has COVID really changed the institutional possibilities uh, for players to engage in some agency, whether in the NBA, NFL, whatever. I was the optimist earlier. I am the absolute pessimist <laughs> now, right? I think that COVID is in a lot of ways sort of going to be able, it's a place where the league can strengthen itself in in opposition to the players in the name of, I mean, you know, we always talk about as political scientists that the state strengthens itself in crisis. And I, I think that this will be the that this will certainly be the case. And I, and I think that all the way down to college, you will see this sort of strengthening of restrictions, strengthening of how much the league has to say about players, behaviors and activities and whatever else as being challenges to the league. Because I think that there's going to be, 
there's a lot of pressure on the leagues now, particularly because they're renegotiating TV contracts. Like they're they're right coming up. The NFL is about to renegotiate their television contract. And they are in a panic, right? Because they can't have people at games at the same way. They can't, they're not, the, the franchises are not making the money that they used to. And so I think that there's going to be an enormous push to try and tamp down any kind of anything that might threaten or alienate anybody, any fan, especially on television, because the TV contracts are, are COVID proof, right? They are the one sort of place because it doesn't require rear ends in, in stands, they, people can just watch on television. And I, I think that the leagues are going to try really hard to look as middle of the road and inoffensive to as many people as possible, which I think is why they have given, if you look around the league, right, or at the various leagues, you see some concessions to the sort of crisis over the summer, the Black Lives Matter protests and and Portland and well, not Portland, that's a whole other story. But um, in terms of the sort of widespread discontent with the police over George Floyd, I think that there was, they have scientifically triangulated the, the responses that they could give that acknowledged, in fact, that something was going on, but refused to give any space other than just we are unified and about love, right? The most bland message that, I mean, and even when there was something that was completely bland, right? Like we were talking about the first game between the Chiefs and the Texans, they played the national anthem and they played Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is for Canadian listeners, that's the black national anthem. And the Texans refused to take the field because they couldn't, the coaches couldn't be sure that there was not going to be some face making or, you know, disrespect associated with that. And the Texans fans booed. It, it came across on the national broadcast. Like there was no way to get get rid of them. Like it, it was reported on across and stuff like that. And that was the most mild mannered <laughs> sort of olive branch that was being extended. And so I think I think, in fact, it will especially in the NFL, I think they're going to lock down as absolutely hard as they can to try and keep themselves out of the political news. They just, they just don't want it. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. The COVID situation is a highly contingent thing. Now, I think being in a bubble helped NBA players in Orlando. Being in that Orlando bubble helped NBA players you know, communicate and socialize and, and speak with one another and engage in ways that they would not have otherwise. That may, that may have facilitated the new political activism. We certainly didn't see the political activism of NHL players eased by the two bubbles that they'd had over the last couple of months. And that says to me, Ali, and I think you probably agree, that the longer term forces acting upon these leagues are much more influential on their politics than the COVID situation. Yeah. Right. The the the, stre- the stresses of conformity in the NFL are overwhelmingly powerful and are probably going to return with a vengeance once all of this stuff is over. Right. Major League Baseball went about its business as if everything was normal, sitting playing in front of you know cardboard cutout fans. So you know, weird. The, the, it's so weird. The permissive players, the permissiveness of the NBA ownership group enables you know the very active 
uh, NBA Players Association to do its thing. Uh, and so all of these institutional practices and cultural contexts are probably going to exert themselves much more powerfully on the player politics after COVID is over. And the result will likely, in my, if I got to predict, is going to be a sort of regression to the mean. Yeah. Right? We'll see all this kind of active political activism regress a little bit, not all the way, not back to, you know, silence and conformity. Uh, but I doubt we're going to see the same kind of, you know, in your face activism in 2021, as we saw in 2020. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think in a in large part, too, it'll be sort of raw, raw patriotism that will sort of squish over top of cultural critique or political critique, right? That I, I can't help but think of 2001. I have been a sports fan for a long time, but my initial sports were baseball and football. Uh, I learned basketball much later. And I remember after 2001, the fly, when the flyover started and the, mm -hmm. the sort of political pageantry and patriotic pageantry that, that became the norm at sports games as a sort of rally around the flag effect. And I have a sneaking suspicion that even if Joe Biden wins, even if there's all kinds of other things, I have a feeling that there's going to be a real uh, hunger amongst sports fans and, and the leagues to sort of try and paper over and, you know, here we are all together again and, and sort of pushes for unity. And I think that that'll, that'll sell really well in terms of, you know, the business model. And so I think there's going to be a huge push. I think players may still want to do it. I'm, I, I can't predict what, you know, what sports stars are going to want to do. They very well may, but I think that there's going to be a huge league push and a, and a huge consumer push to have that sort of, that that sports once again becomes the place where politics are, you know, sort of happy talk instead of anything that's critical. There's an article that came out the, uh, a couple of weeks ago on ESPN by Howard Bryant about exactly that, about the post 9-11 ritual celebration of especially police. Mm -hmm. And his his point is that 19 years later and coming up on 20 years later, this is no longer viable. I, you, you can't have, you know, at Yankee Stadium, Black Lives Matter protests and, and statements and an aesthetic while at the same time, you know, celebrating the same police force that, you know, was unaccountable in the murder of Eric Garner, right? These things simply do not go together. Mm -hmm. Now, perhaps the you know on the field contradiction can be sustained but you know politically it is it, it is incoherent it is completely dissonant yeah. right uh you know we, we over the last 20 years have come to rethink the role of policing and policing in communities and the kind of knee-jerk activism this is howard bryan's arc bryan's argument the kind of knee-jerk support for the troops or the police or whatever uh, is no longer consistent with the politics we're seeing right now. This is especially going to be true for athletes in their early 20s who, you know, were infants or will not have been born uh, after 9-11, right? And their coming of political coming of age isn't 2001, it's 2020. Mm -hmm. So moving forward, how this gets reconciled, you know, 
in the, the, the sports politics, the cultural politics, the commercial dynamics of, of the stadium event is going to be absolutely fascinating to watch. Yeah. I, I, I kind of agree that we'll see, or like the likelihood of seeing that sort of change happen within uh, ownership and leagues and such will be there. But do we think like the public appetite will be there for that sort of jingoism again? In the United <laughs> States? I think you vastly underestimate the public <laughs> appetite for jingoism, my friend. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to tell you this, but uh, there is nothing Americans like better than Americans winning at something. And I the think flyover at that. I, well, that's it, right? Is that was not that wasn't a political. I, and by this, I mean that wasn't a, a political viewpoint. Like everybody liked that, right? Everybody liked the pomp and circumstance because i think that you miss well not you particularly but i think canadians sometimes misunderstand the left-right divide in the united states liberals want america to win just as badly as conservatives do they just think that there's a different way about it right if you go back and i've been making asif watch uh west wing because it is my favorite show that has ever been produced and i think he's somewhat persistently shocked by how how like absolutely bloodthirsty liberals could be right because they are <laughs> they are very pro america and i think everybody like the sort of the driving engine of patriotism is that america ought to be united and whole and deliver on the promises of the constitution and there is a whole rhetoric that is wrapped up in both liberalism and conservatism that everybody likes that, right? We all like it when the flag comes out and they do the star spangled banner and whatever. And I don't think they're going to dislike that after COVID, right? I think that people are going to be, you know, after the 1919 pandemic, there were these like wild parties and, and people were just desperate to get out and, and be normal again. And I think that there are few things as American other than like, well, apple pie and police brutality as like going to a sports game and getting a $17 beer and baking in the sun and cheering for your game. And I think Americans are going to hunger for that in a way that, and and they're going to want to feel some place that there is unity, that there is normalcy, that I, I think sports really in a lot of ways is oftentimes seen as a refuge. And, and it is more or less depending on the period and who you're talking to and whatever else. But the people that love sports love it because it is not lots of other things in, in a lot of cases, right? And, and while I am proud of athletes for, or athletes rather for standing up and, and saying something politically and using their platform, I am not watching the New England Patriots because I like Bob Kraft's politics. And I don't actually care what he does individually as long as he is not making them wear Donald Trump jerseys on on the field right like I mm. am perfectly willing for that to be the case and I'm going to be willing to for that to be the case tomorrow too the, the the point about the the patriotic rituals in sports I I don't think they're going to go away either because people seem to like them uh, people equate sports and f-35 flyovers uh, as they conflate them as the same, one and the same thing, you know, these are the cultural components of American sports. And, you know, as an outside observer, it's kind of a strange thing to watch. But 
I guess that's the way they do things down there. Perhaps, you know, a more highbrow form of patriotism might be nice, like perhaps a reading of the Federalist papers, you know, at the Super Bowl halftime show, but I can dream, can't I? <laughs> the crunchy Canadians. <laughs> From the peanut uh, listen, gallery. This is this is you know f- f- you know Canadians are in a weird an interesting spot watching American sports because because we we know the game inside and out but we are not culturally privy to the ki- same kinds of impulses. You know, in Canada there is this bizarre jingoism attached to hockey in particular, but it more or less ends there, right? Canada can do anything at the Winter Olympics, but it just has to win. The men have to win the gold, the Olympic gold medal in hockey. The women, it would be nice if they won the gold. But for the most part, that is the be-all, end-all of Canadian sports jingoism. So I was just thinking about Americans at the Olympics. Let me tell you something about even this is the Olympics for Americans, having lived there for 22 years. Even people who hate sports, people who are willing to say terrible things about football or basketball or baseball, when it is the Olympics, everybody's watching, right? And you, it brings up every nationalist, aggressive patriotism that has ever, even in the most soft-spoken, crunchy, granola liberal that exists, we are all watching the Olympics, right? Because sports is so much a part of American culture, right? And it and it's not just sports in the sense of like, you know, Canada has hockey and that's its one major thing and everything else it can kind of let go of, but hockey is the thing. Well, it is not the case with America. America wants the most medals by double if they can work it, right? And and they don't care. I have made this joke a number of times, but they don't care if it's underwater basket weaving. It has it had better be an American at the top of it, right? And all of that just comes racing out at the at the Olympics and I I think it is just so ingrained this American exceptionalism because liberals think Americans are exceptional too. They just think they're exceptional in different ways, right? Like they emphasize different things about the national myth and, and sports is really a place that that exceptionalism can be quantified in an easy way. And I also think that it's, there's something good about that because there has been a lot of work done, even if it's not been by players, there has been a lot of work done in terms of racial justice and sort of expanding what Americans look like by, you know, like the sort of average American that Americans conceptualize has been expanded because of of Olympic athletes, right? I mean, if you think about it, Simone Biles, who is just an absolute phenom right got a lot of space to be political but also to be a young black woman who was just better than everybody else but she was not just a young black woman she was a young american when she went to the olympics in a way that very few places where you will put all of the sort of racial and hierarchical divisions of american culture go through this filter when it gets to the olympics and then everybody's just american right because you can get through any other stuff if, if Americans can win. And, and I think there's something very powerful about that that exists in American sports that it, I don't actually think it exists anywhere else. So not only do I not think that it is going to be like the appetite for sports is going to be any diminished, I actually kind of hope that it's not because I, I think that sports plays a, a, a really interesting role in American politics 
on the road to social justice, on the road to um, broadening of the political landscape of the United States, that it doesn't play anywhere else. And I hope it keeps playing that. I, I that last point, I 100% agree uh, that the political discourse within sports broadens the range of the conversation, mm-hmm. broadens the range of, of, of things people think about. Uh, we are in a privileged position as, you know, political science students to think about these things, but compelling your average apolitical sports fan to think about an issue, even for a brief moment, you know, expands the horizon of possibilities. And it's fundamentally a good thing. Even if those flyovers still continue, questions about them are, you know, worth asking, if only in our own minds. Well, I guess the last question I just want to bring up is the fact that, you know, in the states where most of this stuff we're talking about is taking place, big political thing going on right now. It's an election year. We're weeks away from seeing that election actually happen. And we have a situation where a very controversial head of state is running for re-election, and he's really been at the focal point of a lot of this rhetoric and a lot of these statements from athletes. And we're talking about Donald Trump here because we've seen him rail against athletes for making political statements for, for you know, um, trying to seek a... Uh, pro-justice, anti-sort of oppression course for America, you know, and it's even become something that's dogmatic among his, or becoming increasingly dogmatic amongst his support base, you know, from shut up and dribble to the, the notion you talked about earlier, Professor Anger, the spoiled, rotten millionaires. What role do we see athletes taking in the election campaign that we're kind of in the midst of now? And do you think that all the or anti-injustice activism that we've been seeing this past year can push back against this supposed law and order president and and of his ideological goals. Yeah, it could. The benefit that political activism among athletes will bring to the 2020 election is is, is not directly as you know, part of the pro-Biden camp, but it's as part of the broader political mobilization that is out there. Right? The anti-racism protests over the last six months have motivated and mobilized communities you know, against the kind of law and order Trumpism that is pervasive in the United States. And if that can be converted into votes, that's all the better. There's also some question out there about just how effective celebrities are at mobilizing people to vote, right? Uh, You know, people don't necessarily, aren't necessarily all that excited about what movie stars or professional athletes think about specific political candidates. So in that regard, people like LeBron James who are doing get out the vote stuff and anti-voter suppression activism are playing probably a more interesting and maybe even more effectual role than if they just, you know, got up on stage and said, vote for Joe. I am actually more interested in it from the other perspective, right? So uh, President Trump is the law and order president now, and he has been sort of on this cultural critique binge for a little while. But I, the thing that I can't help but look back on is the uh, Republican the convention. I, I can't actually say that you it's the Republican National Convention because the convention was about five minutes on the first day and all the rest of it was just a commercial propaganda commercial. But I don't know if you watched it or not, but I am a masochist, so I did. And, um, and there was a lot of, there was a lot of commentary there about PC culture, which tends to be a code word for racial justice stuff and like social justice and social change 
rhetoric. Mike Pence came up and do it, did it. Donald Trump came up and do it, I don't know, 47, 48 times, I think. Uh, I saw him speak in one week, which was far too many. But uh, in any case, it's funny because the Democrats used to be identified as like the online party, right? That they were too stuck in the Twitter echo chamber and social media and stuff like that. And because of that, they weren't speaking to quote unquote real Americans. And I really felt that there had been this huge shift because the Republican Party was really online, right? They were railing against the 1619 project and things like that. But they were also using sports protest as like a tool to beat up liberals with, right? That that this was in fact, this was proof that, that liberals had rotted the inside of American culture. Because even in sports, you couldn't go and, you know, like sit and have popcorn and beer and, and watch it in peace, right? As a white person. And I, I sort of think that that is, insofar as he can do that, the, the way that he is strongest is, is to cohere a political coalition around the idea that America has changed too much, too fast, too far. And, and PC culture tends to be like a sort of blanket term that covers over that. And, and I think that it really gives him a focal point to be able to point to people that are sort of experiencing that anxiety and nostalgia to say, you know, we could used to be able to go back in the 50s and 60s and go to a football game and be unmolested by other people's opinions. And I I think that that, that he has really effectively used sports protests and sports like movements and amongst athletes and stuff like that to drive his political coalition in a way that I I, not to say that I think that they should stop doing it. Obviously, I I don't. But I, I think it is interesting how insofar as Donald Trump is a genius, which I use that term very lightly here, but um, I, I think it is it is using those sort of the tropes of shut up and dribble and the spoiled rotten millionaires and the whiny privileged athletes to uh, sort of undermine the critique that they are leveling in a way that I, I don't really think that any other politician has been able mm. to, to do. Well, kind of one last question, just because it comes to mind, because you take that step back and, and for professional sports, it's been a weird year. Like we've highlighted a bunch of different things, playing in bubbles, playing to cardboard cutouts, and at the same time, this sort of big thrust across many sports leagues towards politics and really the silence of others being a political statement as well. So looking back, and you know, this involves a lot of foresight, but what do you think that people will be saying about the year 2020 for sports? Is it going to be this sort of critical juncture or a very unique situation, but still very much a blip in the radar? I, w- I would think that people are going to remember 2020 sports unevenly and it depends on the sport right for basketball and basketball fans it'll it might be remembered as the most important season ever for other sports and other sports fans you know it'll be remembered for some abnormal playing conditions right bubbles and cardboard cutouts and the blue jays playing in buffalo and all that kind of weirdness but for the most part it might be forgotten because you know, because because of its abnormality, you know, it'll be an asterisk year where, you know, the results aren't really the same because the competitive conditions aren't really the same. And it'll be that one weird blip on the radar that 
we all look back upon and think, well, that was strange while turning back to, you know, a packed house at uh, Yankee Stadium. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that like we have been talking about sort of the intersection of politics and sports and culture here in a sort of broad way. And and I think that when you're looking at the sports, I it will be sort of epiphenomenal, right? You look back and you're like, well, that was very strange, right? And it was sort of jarring for Sparts fans. And I'm sure that there will be lots of retrospectives and like, remember that year where it was so weird and everything else. But I, I think the power of this year, in fact, comes at that intersection. It does not come in the stadium per se, or in the sports, you know, like the year that Babe Ruth hit the most home runs or whatever. Like those are things that you remember very specifically as being a sports, it is a clear sports memory, right? Like I was telling Dr. Ettinger, my first clear NFL memory was of Drew Bledsoe coming back at a 27 point deficit and winning the game for the New England Patriots. I remember that in my soul and I will forever. (laughs) But that is a sport. It is divorced from anything else. Right. But I think that in this instance, the thing that you, that may in fact sort of echo down the line is the is the place where sports touched every other nerve that had been exposed in this weird moment that we are in right As, especially in the United States right now they have a, there's a lot of nerves that are right on the surface right in terms of police brutality and social justice and inequality and covid and the way that covid is hitting different communities and etc cetera, etc cetera. so it has this everybody's real sensitive right now right and and sports is right it is touching all of those nerves in a way that it very rarely ever does. And I I think that will be the sort of legacy, right? Is the time that sports became everything else and everything else became mixed into this big pot of crisis and instability and change and in some instances progress and whatever else. I I think that's the sort of lasting, but otherwise I, I think on the sort of just purely sports moment, I don't think that you get to win. I even... And I can't believe I'm saying this and I'm sorry, Laker Nation, but like, I don't think that this year, this championship doesn't mean as much to me as years where we played a full season and and things were normal and et cetera, et cetera, because we just simply, we didn't have a regular year, right? Like everybody's like, oh, sports are going. Who knew, right? But it was just, it's not the same as as when you play out the long seasons or whatever. Like, I, I think that there's something special about this year and I'm not sure it's in a good way. This has been great. I thank you both for taking part. This has been a fantastic conversation, really insightful and a lot of fun too. So thank you both. Pleasure to do it. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore poly on Instagram at CU underscore poly dot and on Facebook at carltonu.polysci.